0: Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello, and this is News from the Torah. I am Leah Roney. Today is the 17th day of the Hebrew month of Shvat, January 19, 2022, and this week we will be reading a very special Torah portion, the Torah portion of Ytro, in which the Jewish people are finally out of Egypt, in the Sinai, and they come to Mount Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments from God, and start the process of receiving the Torah, the divine law from God. It's a very special time when we all stand in the synagogue on Shabbat and hear the Ten Commandments, and receive them today. Rashi, the preliminary commentator on the Torah says that the Jewish people felt that every time they communicated with God or they heard God's commandments, they felt like they received them that very day, that this was something new and exciting and special. There was novelty to God's commandments. And the question is: do we feel this way? Do we feel that there's novelty? That there's something new in our communication with God, in our interaction with God, in our Torah learning, in our observance of commandments. And what we're going to do today is talk about some of the events of these past week. The hostage situation in Texas and the new conversion law that is being pushed by the Israeli government. We will look at these events through the prism of the Ten Commandments, of the commandment to remember that there is a God in the world. And also through the story of Yitro, the first and ultimate convert in Jewish history. And finally, we'll talk about personal development, about the mitzvah, the commandment not to covet. That is one of the Ten Commandments. But there's one thing that you are allowed to covet, and we will discuss that during our last segment. How can coveting help you achieve your personal goals? How can coveting make you a better person? How can coveting help you become the person you want to become? Plus, a small takeaway suggestion that can help you reach your goals, no matter what they are. A practical suggestion that you can implement today. All of that and much more after these messages. Don't go anywhere, but we'll be right back. Hello, I am Walter Bingham. If you want to hear the news behind the news and the true perspective on world affairs, then the Walter Bingham File is the program for you. We bring you interviews with the movers and shakers, political commentaries and on-the-spot reports of events as they happen. All here every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Israel time, 9 a.m. Eastern time. And it's all archived on our website. Make it a date. So this week's Torah portion, Yitro, starts with the name and the story of Moshe's father-in-law, Yitro. The Midrash tells us that Yitro was the high priest of the Midian, of the Midianites. And he was disillusioned and disenchanted with the gods of his people. So he set out to find a new true god or gods. He checked out all the gods in the world and he didn't like any of them. None of them satisfied his spiritual yearnings until he found the God of Israel, the ultimate God, the God of all gods, and converted. So this week's Torah portion, that actually has the Ten Commandments in it, is named after the first and most famous convert in the history of the Jewish people, Yitro, the father of Moshe. This is a very timely Torah portion because A few days ago, Israel's Minister of Religious Affairs, Matan Kahana, unveiled his conversion reform. The idea of the conversion reform is to decentralize the conversion system. Today, the chief rabbinate is the central body overseeing conversions. There are several batidin religious courts in Israel that can perform conversions, and the chief rabbinate and it signs off on all conversions. The chief rabbinate also has a list of batidin, rabbinical courts abroad in the diaspora that are recognized in Israel. And in this way, it corrals the international conversion system because a conversion that is not recognized by the chief rabbinate of Israel is really not recognized anywhere in the world. In a way, the chief rabbinist sets the lowest minimal standard that makes a conversion possibly legal and certifiable under the halakhic standards. But Israel has a problem. During the 1990s, some 300,000 non-Jewish descendants of Jews came to Israel from the former Soviet Union under the law of return. Israel's law of return was legislated in the 1950s, shortly after the Holocaust. Before the Holocaust, Hitler adopted a definition of a Jew by which anybody with a Jewish father or a Jewish grandfather, Jewish parent or grandparent was considered to be Jewish. Israel adopted this definition in its law of return so that anybody who was one Jewish grandparent is considered to be eligible for entering Israel under the law of return. It was a way to create a humanistic solution for a handful of Holocaust survivors who were not halakhically Jewish, but nonetheless suffered at the hands of the Nazis. But through the law of unexpected consequences, in the 1950s, nobody ever considered or dreamed of a situation that non-Jews would want to come to Israel and live in Israel. Yet just 35 years later, in 1990, 300,000 descendants of Jews made use of the law of return and came to Israel. Sometimes a single descendant of Jews, somebody with one Jewish grandfather, could bring his entire family, his wife, children and grandchildren, who were all non-Jews, to Israel. And now today we have almost 450,000 of these non-Jewish Israelis living in the country. And they're completely assimilated into the culture. They speak Hebrew, They serve in the army, they love the country, they serve their citizens in every other way. But they cannot get married in Israel or divorced because Israel only has religious marriage and divorce. And so, Mr. Kahana is setting out to solve the issue for these families, for these people, by lowering the standards of conversion and enabling anybody to convert without having to accept observance and observance of commandments. Now, observing commandments is a minimal standard for anybody to be considered a genuine convert. Because in Judaism, conversion is not a national process. It's a religious one. And people who have no interest in observing commandments are not considered to be candidates for conversion. As Judaism does not seek converts it actually discourages converts because it only wants people who are genuinely interested in committing to a Torah lifestyle to join Jew Jewish people. Everybody else is better off staying where they are, staying non-Jews and being good, faithful, God-fearing non-Jews. So Judaism doesn't seek conversions. So Minister Kahana thinks that he's going to solve the problem by lowering the standards of conversion and by basically enabling any city rabbi to set up a a rabbinical court and convert people based on any standard. What Minister Kahane does not understand is that this solution will lead to numerous human tragedies. It will not solve the problem because once you decentralize the conversion system and any rabbi can set up a rabbinical court with any standards, What's going to happen is that the different rabbinical communities and the different rabbinical um, bodies will not accept each other's conversions. and will start checking the bona fides of new converts. And this is a very degrading experience for the converts. Today with a centralized system, when somebody converts, everybody knows what the standards of the conversion are. And the conversions are recognized. With the chief rabbinic Um, conversion, a person can go to almost any Jewish community in the world, almost any Jewish community in the world, and be recognized as a convert. This will not be true once the system is decentralized. And certainly inside Israel, different rabbis will set different standards for different communities, and converts' papers will not be worth the paper they're written on. This is such a violent situation, such an uprooting situation for converts, and it's just not fair. The other problem that Mr. Kahana is not envisioning is that while there are 400,000 non-Jews eligible for the law of return who came to Israel, there are close to 10 million people of this status out in the diaspora. There are almost 10 million non-Jews who are descendants of Jews and who are eligible for the law of return living throughout the world. Now yes, today most of them are not interested in coming to Israel, and most of them are not interested in converting, and today it is not a problem. But the same law of unexpected consequences that brought 300,000 non-Jews to Israel in 1990s could also create a problem with the 10 million non-Jews who are eligible to come to Israel today. We don't know what the circumstances are. We don't know how this is going to pan out. But lowering the standards of conversion in Israel will also lead to lowering the standards of conversion throughout the world. And this will create a situation where there could be a floodgate of converts who are not recognized in many Jewish communities throughout the world. It will create a situation where many Jews cannot marry other Jews. It will divide our people, quite literally, and create castes and groups that do not recognize each other, instead of having a single standard we can all hold by, and a single gateway into the Jewish people that we all recognize, this law will splinter us into groups, and it will hurt the most vulnerable members of the community, the converts. Thirdly, this law will create a catastrophe, for people who want to convert in Southern America. The Southern American Jewish community has a longstanding edict, almost 100 years old, that only converts who convert in Israel are then recognized in the community. This was a way to create a standard for conversion in Argentina and then in Mexico and Panama and in certain Sephardic communities in America. Now with this new conversion law, the door on conversions, will be effectively closed for South American converts. And that's an unpredictable and untenable situation. So what is the solution? I don't have one right now. Israel has been trying to solve this problem for 30 years. But what is not a solution is throwing the baby out with the bathwater, creating untenable, uncertified, subpar conversions that will really not help these people enter the Jewish community and assimilate religiously in the Jewish community, when most of these people are really not interested in a religious solution. It's not solving a problem but creating a new one. And then there's always the political aspect. Mr. Kahana sends the religious community in two types, the modern and the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox. He belongs to the Marden segment, and he wants to wrestle power away from the Haredim. In his mind, the chief rabbinate has been infiltrated by the Haredim, and he wants to fight back. If he can't take it away, if he can't take the power back, he just wants to dismantle the chief rabbinate, by taking his powers away. It, he passed the Kashrut law that took away the power of the rabbinate in the matters of kosher, and now he wants to do the same for the issues of conversion. Religion and politics should really not mix. And undermining the religious experience of millions of people in order to get your power back, and in order to make a power play in politics, is really beneath any self-respecting politician. I think we really need to speak up. We need to explain to Okahana and to the Israeli government that we do not want the pathway into Judaism to be played for political gain, and we do not want conversions to be diluted and the unity of Jewish people to be put under threat. It's too much of a price to pay. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey everyone, this is Andrea Siminto from Jerusalem inviting you to drop everything and join me on my show, Pull Up a Chair. We'll visit this week's Quirky Stories, meet fabulous guests, and discover my Israel. Together we'll laugh, shout, and explain the topics that make us say, Hey, we've got to talk about that! So get comfortable and pull up a chair with me, Andrea Siminto, every Thursday on Israel News Talk Radio. come back. So like the rest of the Jewish world, over this past Shabbat, you're probably stirred by the hostage situation at the Beth Israel Congregation in Colville, Texas. A man approached the synagogue and knocked on the glass door. He was questioned by the rabbi and assuming that the man was looking for shelter, the rabbi let him in, made him a cup of tea, and welcomed him into the into the sanctuary. But then halfway through the services, the rabbi heard a click of a gun, and the gunman took four people hostage, demanding the release of a Pakistani scientist known as Lady Al-Qaeda, who is serving multiple uh, sentences in American prison. Thankfully, this incident ended quite well when the rabbi noticed after 11 hours of standoff that the gunman is... Distracted, the rabbi, thanks to his quick wits and previous training with the law enforcement, threw a chair at the gunman and all three men ran out through the fire escape. This is how the situation ended and the gunman was killed afterwards. The incident created quite a stir online with some people commenting on the rabbi's political outlooks. One of the people who claims to be a congregant in the synagogue accused the rabbi of saying that Israel is an apartheid state and questioning his politics. I think it's quite inappropriate. First of all, no matter their opinions, an attack on Jews is an attack on Jews, period. It doesn't matter if they're right, left, or center. It doesn't matter if they're progressive or conservative. It doesn't matter who they vote for. Some things are above politics. And safety of people is one of them. And safety of Jews from anti-Semitism is one of them. And our stand against the terrorism is one of them. Politics don't matter when people cannot go to pray safely in their place of worship. Secondly, I don't think this is the time to question the rabbi's motives of thinking when he literally saved two of his congregation members by risking his life Quite on the contrary, I think he inspired us with the dignity, the courage, and the quick thinking he showed. And just watching the rabbi's interview on CBS showed how traumatized he is. There's a time and a place for everything. And blaming the victim for his outlooks just after he suffered a traumatic attack is callous and inappropriate. Thirdly, I'm not so sure that therefore it's even true. Yes, the rabbi signed a letter by an organization, Truah, a radical organization that does accuse Israel of being an apartheid state, but that specific letter was against the annexation of Judea and Samaria. Personally, I obviously do not agree with this stand, but a quick look through the rabbi's sermons and speeches on his side showed that he does not espouse anti-Israel outlooks. He does criticize Israel, but he also supports it in other ways. And like I said, we may not agree, but he's definitely not in the Israel-is-apartheid state camp. But the two things that did bother me in the community response to this terrorist attack, the first one was that the community, together with law enforcement agencies, chose to characterize this terror attack as a, quote, random act of violence. Really? Somebody takes a gun and goes out to find a synagogue on a Saturday morning and then demands the release of a terrorist who is known for her anti-Semitism. And this isn't a random act of violence? The rabbi in the synagogue shared that the government asked twice to speak to a leading rabbi in New York, as a way of releasing the terrorists because he was sure that this leading rabbi would have the political pull to get the terrorists released from prison. He clearly thought that Jews run the world and that Jews can do anything. So this was a targeted attack on a synagogue. It was a targeted crime of hate. It wasn't a random act of hate. And this is not Borpark or Brooklyn or Muncie. This is Texas. It would be quite incredulous for somebody to randomly stumble on a synagogue of all places in the middle of Texas. Secondly, I was very disappointed when in his thank-you letter the rabbi did not reference God. He referenced law enforcement. He referenced everybody who prayed for him and all of these people obviously deserve a big thank you. But above all, the first thank you, should always go to God. In this week's Torah portion of Yitro, we read the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods besides me. Our commentators say that these two commandments, I am your God, and you shall have no other gods, encompass the entire Torah of the 613 commandments of it. The first one, I am the Lord your God, encompasses all the positive commandments. You should have no other gods, encompasses all the negative commandments. Our entire Judaism, our entire Torah, is about asserting the existence of God. We do this by by performing commandments, by praying. But the point of all of this activity, all of this ceremony, is to assert the existence of God. Unfortunately, this three-letter word, G-O-D, God, is absent from much of the discussion of religion in today's Judaism. We talk about commandments, we talk about halacha, the Jewish law, we talk about the Torah, but we just don't talk about God. And when God is missing from our discourse, after such a traumatic event, after such a tragic event, how could it be that a rabbi would not invoke the name of God and say thank you to God. And this is really something we need to take stock of. How often do we talk to God? How often do we think of God? How often do we align our religious activity and our religious ceremony with doing the will of God? How cognizant are we of God in our lives? How much of our religious performance is just rote? How much of it is mindful? being a vehicle, a channel for connecting with God and manifesting His presence in our lives. The word for commandments, mitzvot, is usually uh, translated as just that, a commandment, something that was commanded to us. But this Hebrew word actually has another root. It also can be translated as something that brings you close, from the word tzvata. Tzvata is to be close, to be together. Commandments are commands of God, things that he told us to do. But commandments are also ways to be close to God, to bond with him, to have a personal, inspired, emotional relationship. Whether you light Shabbat candles or you bless your food or you observe Shabbat, or you learn Torah, or you light candles on Hanukkah, you eat matzah on Pesach, you build a sukkah, you wear tzit and tefillin, whatever mitzvot it is that you perform, when you perform these mitzvot, are you mindful of God? Are you mindful that this act has meaning? Because it is something that God asked you to do as giving him nachas, giving him joy, at seeing his children do his will. It's something that you do for God because God asked you to do it. It's also something you're doing for yourself as a way of being mindful and practically including God in your everyday life. We need to bring God back into the discourse of religion. It's not just the legal system, it's not just ritual, it's not just a lifestyle, it's not just culture. Judaism, at its core, is a relationship. It's a relationship with yourself. It's a relationship with other Jews around you. It is a relationship with the world. And it is a relationship with God. And this relationship has to be nurtured and built and invested into, like every other relationship. Because otherwise, it just goes stale. And unless we bring God back into the conversation, we can't have this relationship. So, this past Shabbat was a reminder to all of us that if we let anti-Semitism go unchecked, if we let the anti-Israel sentiment go unchecked, they will come back to haunt us and make us feel much less safe, no matter where we live. But this ordeal was also a reminder to bring God back into the conversation, to make sure that our commandments, our Torah learning, our lifestyle reflect a vibrant, mindful, emotional relationship with God. Because otherwise, our Judaism is just not meaningful. It is not robust enough, not satisfying enough, and not purposeful enough to carry on with it, to overcome obstacles for it, to pass it on to the next generation. So, when was the last time you had a talk? with God? When was the last time you had a conversation about God? How often do this three letters, G-O-D, make it into everyday conversation? Make it into your internal dialogue? I suggest you look out for that. You monitor it, you see. How often does God appear on your mind and on your tongue? Let's bring God back into the picture. Let's bring God back into the conversation. It is the first mitzvah of the Torah, and an all-encompassing one. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Shalom, I'm Leah Haroni. Join me on my show, News from the Torah. Each Sunday, we'll use the weekly Torah portion as a prism for understanding the news today. Listen to News from the Torah to gain clarity about the times we're living in and to understand your own spiritual path in the process. News from the Torah every Sunday on Israel News Talk Radio. back for our third and final section today. So in the Ten Commandments, there is one commandment that's pretty hard to keep, and that's the commandment of not coveting. When you see somebody have something, a new car, a new apartment, new furniture, new kitchen, new outfit, new gadget, you're commanded by God not to covet this item. For example, you see something that somebody has and you'll really like it, you cannot pressure them to sell it to you. You cannot walk around in your heart saying, oh, I want this thing that this friend has. But there is one kind of coveting that is actually allowed. And not only is it allowed, it is actually encouraged. And that's spiritual coveting. In a book called Bnei Mach by the Pesetz and the Rebbe, the Rabbi Clonimus Kalman Shapiro, who lived during the Holocaust, he writes that there's one way to reach spiritual heights. And the way to reach spiritual heights is when you see somebody have a certain character trait or learning ability, a personal ability, or a behavior that you find to be very appealing. You should covet that for yourself. You should look at the person and say, why can't I do that? Why can't I have that? I also warned that. Not only that, he writes that if you read a commentary, a thought, an idea on the Torah, and you really like it and it appeals to you, you should think to yourself, why wasn't I able to formulate an idea like that? Why wasn't I able to write that? Now, this sounds really far-fetched. For example, there's a whole genre of books about holy people. They're called Siparei dikim the stories of holy people. And very often we read these books and we're inspired. But then we say, okay. But this is a story about very special, unique individuals. I can't be like that. I'm not like the Baal Shem Tov. I'm not like the Hafez I'm not like the Hazan Ish. I'm not like this holy person. This person is exceptional. I can't do that. But the Bnei Mach Shavah Tovah tells us, why would God show you this thing? Why would God bring you this story? Why would God put this on your radar if not to signal to you that you can also strive for this glory? You can also strive for this kind of behavior. You can also strive for this kind of character trait. Our sages tell us that every day a person should ask himself, when will my deeds reach the deeds of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, our forefathers? And the answer to that question is, never. Our deeds will never match those of our forefathers. Why? Because the same sages say if our forefathers are like angels, then we are like people. And if our forefathers are like people, then we are like donkeys. There's a qualitative difference in the kind of personalities and the kind of makeup we have than our forefathers had 3,000 years ago. So then, if that's the case, why we should say daily, When will my deeds reach the deeds of our forefathers? And the answer is, you will never get there. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. If you strive to become better, then with time you will make progress. But if you never strive to become better, then there's no way you will ever make progress. It's not an all or nothing proposition. A lot of the Western society, with its competitive streak, is all about all or nothing. Zero or 100. Either you make it for the top and you make it to 100, you make it to total success. Or why bother? A lot of people have a lot of potential and actually never actually um, make anything of that potential because the thinking goes, what if I try and fail? What if I try and never get to the 100? Then I will be a failure. But as long as I don't do anything, as long as I don't really try, all of my potential is intact. And I have never tried, so I have never failed. Judaism doesn't believe in that. Judaism believes that there's no zero and there is no 100. There's no failure. There's just learning. So from wherever you are, you have to take small daily steps to move in the direction you want to move. And any progress... It's great progress. This week I heard a friend ask, what's the better outlook? I'm capable of mediocre work, or I'm capable of extraordinary work, and a few of my friends chimed in with the different insights. It made me think of a book that I read this week, Making Meaning Out of Madness by Miratna Portnoy. She writes that she was able to graduate from college by striving to write average papers. Instead of try, striving to write excellent papers. And actually, in the end, most of her papers were quite good. But by the perfectionism and trying to achieve the best would have sabotaged her. The same is true for everything. I think if we understand that we should not be focusing on ourselves and thinking, what am I capable of? Am I capable of greatness? In which case we're trapped in ego land or we're to completely focused on ourselves and our self-worth, we should be asking the question of, what is possible today? What is the next step? What can I do now? And if we take that outlook and we constantly question, what is the next step that is feasible today? What can I achieve today? Over time, we will notice that we have accomplished quite a lot. The Bnei Makhshava brings another idea. He says, what's the point of these little thoughts of coveting good things, good character traits from other people? What does that do for you? He says that when you sometimes look at a person and you see something good in them and you think to yourself, well, I would have wanted to do that, that doesn't really motivate you to create change. But if you do that over and over and over again, you keep notice this personal trait, this character trait, this kind of behavior that you want to adopt, over and over and over again. Together, each strand, each thought becomes something big, and one day, it will be significant enough to motivate you to actually make the change, and the same works in the opposite way. Sometimes, for example, you notice that you have a bad interaction with somebody, and you have that some bad interaction, again and again and again and again. And each one of them is not significant until one day somebody says one word and it's a straw that breaks the camel's back and the whole relationship blows up. Well, sometimes you have a negative thought and you don't really want to act on it. But if that thought keeps recurring, then one day you will find yourself in a situation where you cannot resist temptation. Little things matter. Little thoughts matter, little actions matter, they accumulate, ever which way. If we choose to take small steps, small thoughts, small movements in the right direction, over time they can create big change and big progress. But if we don't give ourselves accounting, and we don't control our behavior ever each way, then we're really not going anywhere. We have to stay away from negative behavior, even small acts and thoughts of negative behavior because over time they accumulate and they create real damage. And on the other hand, we have to create as many possibilities, as many opportunities for positive behavior, for positive thought, for positive outcomes, because over time they accumulate as well. So just looking at somebody and finding a source of inspiration, coveting The positivity, surrounding yourself with positive, successful, good, kind people, would create sources of inspiration for you that over time will have a tremendous effect. So yes, the Torah is not about coveting. The Torah thinks that we should be happy with what we have, but not when it comes to spirituality, not when it comes to growth. There is no end to how much a person can grow. There's no end to our human potential. There's no end to our godly soul. We're capable of so, so, so much more than we can ever know. But the only way to make that happen is not by shooting for the stars. It's by looking at the things that we can do next, knowing that we can reach the stars because our potential is limitless. But never let that limitless potential scare you. And I actually have a suggestion. It's something I heard from a woman who reads a lot of stories of special holy people. She told me once that she read a story about a holy person. And she thought to herself, okay, what good does that do for me? Now that I know that this person was very special and holy, I knew that beforehand. And now I have stories to prove it. But what good is there in the world for me reading this book? And then she said, okay. What are some of the behaviors in this book that I could emulate? What are two things I could take away and undertake for myself to do them to make this world a little bit of a better place? The book she was referencing is a book by a writer, Simcha Raz, and it's about a very holy man, Rabbi Arya Levine, who lived in Jerusalem about 50 years ago. He was very kind and very attentive to all kinds of people. And he was known as the rabbi of prisoners because he would come to visit Jewish resistance fighters in the British prisons before the um, Declaration of Independence. Rabbi Levine had a custom. When somebody would ask him for directions, he would not just tell people where to go. He would actually take them there personally to make sure that the person reaches his destination. And this woman decided to undertake this one custom – When somebody asked for directions, she would go with the person to make sure they reached the destination. One little act of kindness she read in a book and undertook. What is one thing that you've seen somebody do, that you've read about, that you have wanted to make yours, that you could undertake to make this world a better, kinder, nicer place? Thank you so much for being with us. And I'm looking forward to seeing you once again on News from the Torah next week. Bye-bye now. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook.